We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm joined today by my colleague, Madeline Osborne. She's the managing editor at The Federalist. Madeline, welcome to this special mailbag. Wow my accent just came out there uh my you're not from wisconsin are you uh mailbag episode of federalist radio hour sometimes it just uh it comes out when you least suspect it um but welcome madeline thank you glad to be here uh mailbag i guess is what we have to say for the rest of the show um so we are we haven't done one of these in a long time have we because madeline you used to produce federalist radio hour as longtime listeners know um and we did used to do these pretty regularly right yeah it was good in the year tradition we used to do a fun one with molly and david um and a fun one with ben those are the glory days we um definitely can't compete with molly and david <laughs> Yeah, no, no way. Who's the good they cop and the bad cop? That's that's bad cop is Harsani and uh, good cop is Molly. Yeah, on most things, David's David's pretty pessimistic. Not that Molly's an optimist. Um, <laughs> David is just like the ultimate contrarian. Like when you think about the contrarian, that's why he was the Federalist. Just loved loved him and still loves him is because that's just right up our alley. Whatever the whatever the conventional person thinks david thinks the opposite and it's good it's like his opinions are good healthy it's healthy yeah um okay so we got some questions on twitter um a lot of which were sent in by trolls which i think is excellent uh well first of all madeline would you want to take a guess at one of the repeated questions that we got when we we uh, asked for people to send questions who funds the federalists yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh man love it um and a lot of trolls were sending in questions i just love that people like deploy that as though it's some piece of original thought um (laughs) at at this point like yeah excellent excellent that should do it um one person asks will you pay your interns they are starving (laughs) actually our interns are paid (laughs) (laughs) we do pay our interns and they're not starving i've i've seen their fridges full of coors light (laughs) It, well, until they have the champagne of beers in their fridges, we, <laughs> we, some, we may have some problems. Um, so one question here. Uh, this is a troll question. Uh, how did you convince so many that you work for the people when you actually only work for the rich? Well, patriotic cats vaxxed. Uh, <laughs> I think this is an interesting question because, first of all, thank you so much for um, agreeing that people see us as an outlet that works for the people. Uh, that's very nice of you, and I hope that that's true. Um, and I know it's quite literally in the name, the Federalist. Yes, exactly, and I know that it's increasingly true. And Madeline. Our sort of Madeline is our managing editor. There aren't many publications where, uh, first of all, their their team is sort of as small and scrappy and, and hardworking as ours is, but that are spread out um, and not uh, not at all isolated and grouped and concentrated in uh, sort of urban enclaves uh, as us. I mean, like we, we exactly, are, we, and it's it's like you said, it's a federalist. It's very much in the spirit of federalism. The best metric of this is that I went to zero um, holiday cocktail parties. Um, How many friends? Like Emily did in yeah. her swampy DC. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. Our I won't dox any of our employees, but we are all in 
multiple states and it's awesome but and not like it's not like some of us are in new york some of us are in la and some of us are in um dc it's like madeline is our managing editor and she's in texas not in a city but outside of a city in texas um and a lot of our pieces if not most of our pieces and it certainly has been most of our pieces in the past are written by non-professional writers and people Mm -hmm. that aren't in the beltway Um, laymen well and so that's where you start I, i think that's where we're very proud to sort of actually the and i've mentioned this before the moment that i was like red pilled on the federalist i was working at the washington examiner and the media had spent i had actually done some like pretty serious reporting into roy moore um with uh my colleagues and the media had just spent all this time asking why are there serious people in alabama after all of this who could vote for Roy Moore? Why? What explains it? Why would people do this? And uh, at The Federalist, we published an article, um, I wasn't obviously on staff at the time, um, that people still try to use as some sort of like discrediting attack on us, um, where somebody laid out on a silver platter, it was the perspective of an actual normal Alabama voter who explained exactly Mm -hmm. why he was still voting for Roy Moore, despite all of the allegations. He grappled with the allegations. He talked about, I think, being pro-life and went into this entire substantive argument for voting for Roy Moore. It's not an argument I agreed with, but it's an argument that nearly 50% of people in Alabama were supportive of. And Mm -hmm. that to me is just like... And the media lost their mind. They had been looking for this answer. And then when we published it, they went berserk. Right. And it is entirely, uh, to get back to Patriotic Cat's vaxxed question, it's entirely out of line with what the entire sort of uh, wealthy, uh, well-moneyed establishment of the media and of the political establishment. I mean, Republicans were obviously working against uh, Roy Moore. Um, Not all, but most uh, were working against Roy Moore. And um, it's it was entirely against it was entirely in line publishing that was entirely in line with the people of Alabama that f- almost 50% of voters in Alabama who said yeah we're still voting for the guy and like it's a totally alien and foreign argument for people to, like in Washington and Manhattan to hear um, and when they heard it they were just like shocked and they wanted immediately to silence it when they had been asking for it for weeks yeah exactly and it's and uh and to get back to patriot cat cat's question (laughs) what did he say like we're for the rich like like we said this most of our writers are have full-time jobs as preachers or teachers um like some of our senior contributors are literally just like teachers in long island and dallas so um i don't know how you can get more of the people than that Yeah, uh, I think that's true. And I think a big problem um, that we've identified and and worked to correct, along with other writers at other publications in conservative media, is that most of conservative media is isolated in New York and D.C. Um, And that's less and less true, I think, every year, but it has been true for a long time. And that very much clouded the judgment um, that some people made uh, when it came to the the populist rise of Donald Trump during the Republican primary. And people have been um, sort of open about that. But it's 
one of those things that actually just does really in the the sort of coming apart Charles Murray sense really colors the way people write about things and cover things. There's so much groupthink. Um, the the cocktail party circuit is is very real, even if you're in the small group of conservatives in Washington D.C. or even in New York City. Um, it's it has a very real effect on the coverage, um, and so I think it's uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really cool. It's a good, like I said, it's a good question. Thank yeah, you. it's a great question. Thank you, Patriotic Cats Vax. Um, it, it is a good question. That's a, that's a great point. Um, well, they aren't making a great point, but we turned it into a way to make a great point. <laughs> Let us help you, Patriots Vax Cats. Yes, yes. yes. Um, here's another one. Um, as a fiscal conservative, how can you argue for increasing the wasteful military budget? This is another question that I think gets to exactly what Patriotic Cats Vaxxed was saying in that, um, and we're having this debate about, I think, uh, how, what the appropriate conservative response to the mounting tensions um, in Taiwan are. This is an issue that we actually are, I think, one of the few publications, again, to like publish a very robust debate in our pages on where people mm-hmm. have strong takes on both sides of these questions. And we're letting them sort of go at it in our pages. Um, the military budget, I don't know if any of us have argued for increasing the wasteful military budget. Um, I doubt that Molly would do that. I doubt that uh, Bedford would do that. I, I don't know, um, but I doubt it. But I, I can see like maybe that we would have published something on to, along those lines. But I actually think a lot of people are, uh, especially after the performance in Afghanistan, but the performance of uh, General Milley um, in front of Congress where he was talking about white rage, um, are there are a lot of conservatives who are increasingly very, very open to uh, sort of coloring outside the conservative lines and uh, decreasing the military budget at this point i think the point about just hosting debates in general not just this debate on taiwan um is a good one and one that i always point out to people when they bring have issues with a piece like if you have a a a really an issue with like a, a pretty hot take on our site the odds are pretty likely that we have um, mm-hmm. another piece making the exact opposite case or, or we've had people ask to write that. Um, and, or we, we, or we have asked other people to write it. Um, like we've sought out the other side and that's just Almost something always that we do that. Yeah. And that's just something that we, I think that the federalist is, is really unique about is that we don't have an editorial board. Um, we don't, we have one really editorial position, which is what Madeline? <laughs> which is uh, that we hate the White House Correspondence Center. <laughs> That's the only time we've ever taken drawn an editorial line. Uh, we ran pro-Hillary stuff. We ran pro-Trump stuff. We ran anti-Trump, we ran anti-Hillary, like in 2016. So, um, you know, we've hosted debates on whether women should be drafted um, obviously COVID stuff. So I think that's something that I always try to point out to people. And I think people are surprised when I tell them that. And I think it's just a good one to remind people of. Yeah. If you, exactly. And and we like, I, I don't know, maybe would you say like 70% of our content, at least 50% of our content is from outside, um, subscribers or readers and so, or just freelancers. And so if you have a really strong opinion and you really disagree with something like write a piece for us and submit it and like, we'll consider it. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll consider it. Um, and like that, that isn't to say we publish pieces that are in defense of the media, uh, because there, there are certain things that we're just going to say, like in a lot of cases, if it, like our resources are not best spent making an argument that is being made at every single legacy media outlet, like that is not the best use of our time. We exist to question those narratives because they are so often wrong and to report on things and to cover things that they are not covering. Um, and that are interesting in and of themselves. And so it's not, you know, right. like we're not going to things. And I think that's why this is a good question because this guy is kind of referring to, I assume it's a guy, um, this Twitter user is asking about kind of like a debate that's happening within the right, um, like, you know, physical conservatives versus people who want a strong defense. Not that those are the two sides of the debate, but all that to say, that's what we do best, right? Like getting into the heart of those types of um, debates on the right. Yeah. And, and Madeline has been, how many years have you been at the Federalist now? Six or seven. I started in 2015, so I don't know when that is. Which was really early in our lifespan. Yeah. We still are launched in 2013 or 2014, I think. Yeah. It's been really interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily... It's It kind of does... It's like you say, it's interesting to me that people are surprised when they discover that we have multiple viewpoints on these controversial hot button topics, whether it's vaccines um, or masks or whatever it is. We really do publish different things on these. Um, but it's I think it speaks to the average person's media diet, which is not reading newspapers from front to back. It's sort of getting uh, one article from one outlet when the headline is interesting and it comes across their social media feed um, and then maybe clicking through other articles or people send them articles and not like reading a whole publication. Um, so it's hard to blame people for not necessarily recognizing it because it just speaks to how differently we uh, read news now. But it is mm -hmm. very true about our website that like w on, on most big issues, we're going to have... Um, a debate about it and I, I think that's really cool and i think it's great that we don't have editorial stances makes it fun makes keeps it, it interesting makes it fun keeps it interesting um so here's a a question that is actually i don't know if it's a good faith or not but it is kind of interesting um question is there a difference between the expression quote using a kill shot when applied toward a policy versus toward a human being I'm curious whether you don't believe there's a difference or whether you have such a cynical view of your readers. Either way, you have an issue. This is referring, uh, Madeline, to the controversy uh, with Jesse Waters telling people, I think maybe he was at a Turning Point conference, um, to use a kill shot on Anthony Fauci, but it was in the context of him talking about interviewers. <laughs> he was literally talking about journalists, um, about people who are talking to Fauci. He was talking mm -hmm. about talking, like very obviously, very literally talking about talking. Um, it's not an expression I would use because there are crazy people out there and I don't want to feel like personally any guilt for like inspiring anybody but it's obviously not, it wouldn't be anybody's fault but the person who did it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I think this question is setting up an, an entirely false dichotomy that you either believe there's a difference between talking about policy and a human being, or we just sort of cynically see our readers as chumps. Um, it's not either. It's that, again, the media reported something that was utterly misleading. There is actually the question here, and that I would throw back to this, uh, this Twitter user is, do you believe there's a difference or do you believe that it's important to uh, talk about misleading media coverage? You know what I mean? Right. Like, what would you say to that, Madeline? Well, he, 
I don't know if you mentioned or not that this is, I think this might be in response to um, Jordan, our colleague Jordan Board's article, um, basically running down every single time that CNN has used the term kill shot. Mm. And so my question to this person is like, well, he was asking about like context. So he's trying to like defend this context. Is, is he trying to defend the context in which CNN used kill shot multiple times to discuss leaders and politicians? Um, and right, if he be- it's it, a policy. Right. And if he believes that context is everything here, then why does he not care about the context of Jesse Waters' comments? I think that's really, really well said. That's that's exactly the difference. And again, we we did an entire podcast um, that has already already either either already aired or will air uh, very soon about uh, the big media lies of 2021. And one thing that kept coming up is how it is uh, entirely the media's fault that we have to spend so much time debunking their misleading uh, and context-less claims. And we can't talk about the substance of things. Like, is there maybe a question to be had about media commenters using responsible language in this case? I mean, I guess. I don't think it's a super important one. Um, but I guess we could have that conversation. But we, again, now have to be stuck in this cycle where we're debating the media. And the media uh, the media coverage is now another part of the story. So, like, while you're also supposed to be talking about the substance, you're actually just debating the fact that the media botched the way that it was reporting, that it wasn't a fair report. Um, the, the coverage was misleading because they didn't mention the context in the headline. I would just say this is a non-story, period. Um, mm-hmm. But to the extent that it is a story, the big story is that the media has different standards for different people. Obviously, of course, we all know that, um, but is also being misleading. So I don't think any of our coverage is anything cynical about our readers or is saying that um, there's no difference between talking about using that language about a policy versus a human being. It's pointing out the media, the the, right. the problems with the media coverage. Um, and that's important. That's very important. And it's a different question. Yeah. And I think he's just bitter that we even brought it up. <laughs> We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. The Economist recently reported American philanthropy is going woke and predominantly funding liberal causes. Do you want to help counterbalance this influence? If so, consider listening to Giving Ventures. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a new podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. Giving Ventures was joined recently by former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, now president of Young America's Foundation, where, in full disclosure, I also work, who shared with us what he's doing to preserve President Reagan's legacy and instill in future generations a similar love of God and country. In an earlier episode, J.P. DeGantz, president and CEO of Comunio, joined us to discuss what he's doing to strengthen marriages across the country. 
country. And Nikki Neely, president of Parents Defending Education, told us what she's doing to help parents engage with their local school boards. The show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with policy groups, student organizations, academic centers, and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government, grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. If you care about the principles of liberty, and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures is the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on the latest episode by visiting donorstrust.org slash podcast. That's donorstrust.org slash podcast. One more, uh, if we view, and I thought this question was interesting, if we view a stay-at-home parent as a job, why are people still obsessed with work requirements for things like the child tax credit? Madeline, uh, a lot of our friends are very into the child tax credit, have done a lot of work on the child tax credit, um, a lot of coverage, a lot of policy work on the child tax credit, and you are a working mom um, who does work from home. So I was curious for your take on this. I think it raises an interesting question, and it's sort of like another question that was raised by the, the Romney bill, which is a handout bill um, that I don't particularly like, and we've had a lot of debate about here on this podcast, that um, is basically, it's not a tax credit, it's it's direct payments to parents, um, but mm-hmm. it starts during pregnancy. It starts during pregnancy, and like starting to rethink conservative orthodoxy on some of these issues in creative and principled ways is really interesting to me. So what do you think about this question in that context? Um, is uh, why should there be a work requirement for a tax credit or a child payment if staying at home, uh, as conservatives often say, is a job? Well, so I, I don't, I legitimately don't know the answer. Is there's not a work requirement for any of like Romney's or the pro- proposed or the child check tax credits that we've already gotten? Is there? That's the big debate about the Romney plan that's happening on the right. Romney signaled in his statement after uh, Build Back Better was sort of symbolically killed, well, I guess substantively killed by Manchin saying that he wouldn't vote for it. Romney put out a statement saying he's willing to work on uh, developing a work requirement. Um, And I think he said it in some sort of stupid way about like, like euphemistic way because Rubio who had done a ton of CTC work and uh, I think Mike Lee or Ted Cruz criticized him about that. Right. I, I would say um, this isn't specifically to work requirements, but one of the things that I've found really refreshing this year is people finally picking up on the um, like cultural myth that you have to have two parents working, kind of this like two income trap for the lack of <laughs> a better term. But basically, I think... Uh, candidates like Blake Masters have been really like bold and brash and saying like the ideal nuclear family situation um, is where we have one working parent and one parent able to raise our children. Um, And I think that is, it's just, it's disturbing to me to see the Biden administration with Build Back Better like work so hard to make us stick our babies in daycare as soon as we can, um, as opposed mm. to putting all that energy um, and money into just making one income a sustainable way to live in America. Um, I think if you really ask moms, and there are obviously our colleague Joy Pullman has like the data and the polls and the research to back this up, but just like 
as a generalization, when you ask women if they would prefer to like stay home with their, not stay home, not, not work, but if they would prefer to like raise their child themselves or stick them in daycare, they're always going to pick, stick, like raise their child themselves. Like even women who before they have their, before they're pregnant or before they have their baby and they think like, Oh, I'm, I definitely want to go back to work. Like, you know, that six week or eight week mark, 12 week mark, whatever it is, um, for your maternity leave. I know so many women just like anecdotally that (laughs) immediately change their mind. Like they get to that eight week or that 12 week mark with their newborn. And they're like, how can I go back? Or how could I ship them off to someone else? Um, I mean, the science is there as far as like what that does, what shipping, how important the first three years of a child's life are um, for that parent connection, Um, whether it's mother, baby, father, baby, both of them. um, The first three years are just so critical to like your brain development, like your your brain develops 90% to like what it is as an adult in the first three years of your life. And so um, I just, for like Biden, the Biden administration to completely ignore all that for the sake of like feminism or equity or whatever you, whatever you want to label. Um, like women, like if women want to work, women can work. That's great. But like, they shouldn't have to. Right. And I think that's what a lot of women feel. Um, and I think if you ask women that that's what they would admit. And so I've just, I don't know about like this person's questions about like, you know, the mechanics of like, should we require women to work if they want this handout or whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know how the policy works on that, but I just know what the women in my life want and what I want for my child. And I can tell you it's not sticking them in daycare as soon as they're six (laughs) weeks old. Um, Yeah. So I think the reason all of that, like you just bringing up the Blake Masters point is so great in this context. It it is so helpful. I, I would say the reason that people are still obsessed for work requirements, despite the fact that conservatives do value stay at home parenthood, um, particularly stay at home motherhood is because you don't want to create a, there's sort of the separate question of dependency. Um, and I do think that's separate because, um, you, sort of don't want, first of all, abuse of taxpayer resources, which does often happen. It doesn't happen in every case, but it is a serious problem. And there is still, as Rubio and Senator Lee have talked about, the the dignity of of work. And if you create a situation um, where it's easier for both parents uh, to... I mean, I guess if we lived in a cultural climate where it was like stay-at-home motherhood was normalized. Um, And a lot of women are stay-at-home moms, of course, but it's sort of looked down upon um, Mm -hmm. by elites. Or you're you're sacrificing some career, you know, you're throwing away a college degree or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I was getting, it actually reminds me exactly of the way that we, and I went to public school as you did too, right, Madeline? Yep. Um, The way that we condition children, even in places like where Madeline and I grew up in Texas and Wisconsin, to basically say that to matter, to be a success as a human being, 
we are going to structure your uh, K through 12 education to get you into college. And if you do not get into college, the implication of course is that you have failed. Mm -hmm. Um, And this reminds me very much of that conditioning that has sort of taken over the country in the last half decade that to be worthwhile, you have to be, uh, you have to work. Um, And I think it's true that of course there's dignity in work, but it's a very particular kind of work that people want, right? That, that the, mm-hmm. the elites tell us we need to be doing. You need to be- involved. Well, because of the wage gap, right? The, <laughs> the It's all about eliminating the, the gender wage gap. Like we have to have as many women in, in boardrooms as we do men. Right, and people don't come out and say this because they don't realize it's the, the logical conclusion of their ideology, but it does um, say that like worthwhile work, successful work is white collar work. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, a similar message that women get. And it makes life really hard for them um when they are conflicted you know do i want to have value as a human being and go back to my white collar job um or do i want to stay at home with my children because we've sort of erased the uh we can't talk about how essential that may be to development Um, oh yeah yeah it's been people i mean we've talked about censorship a lot not in this episode but uh recently and the woman who did the, she's a wall street journal reporter. I forget her name right now, but the woman, the woman who wrote like the quintessential book and biological research on what, how important the first three years to, um, an infant's brain are. And just like having the, uh, the close relationship with their mom, those first three years, she was completely blacklisted from like, she did one media interview. And when they realized what her book was saying, she couldn't get any, she was like booked for today's show and in good morning America and all these other places. And when they realized like what she was saying about like the importance of women, like raising their babies, um, she was blacklisted immediately. Totally. And uh, this leaves us in this situation where the cultural climate is such that these child payments, um, there's a work requirement there because a there is dignity in work and one parent should absolutely be working and these child payments like the proposed ones are pretty big and you don't want to get into a situation where you just have like both parents driving uber i guess you know what i mean like because like and and not having I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I'm I'm open on this question. Um, but I think you know to get other people's money, to get taxpayer money, um, you should absolutely. There should always be some sort of work requirement in cases where it makes sense. Um, because you can't just sort of be, especially in this case where it's just uh, indefinite payments for kids under the age of eighteen, um, dependents under the age of eighteen. I don't think that makes a lot of sense because you don't want to foster a culture where people are looking to the federal government to provide for their children, especially in this climate where we don't believe that one parent should be at home, as as Masters talks about. If we had that time, type of climate, this may be a different conversation, but we don't. Um, and if anything, the left talks about how um, a child child payments, no string attached child payments help women work more. And women don't want that. Like working right. mothers don't want that. And they find that out after their mothers and it shows up in polling time and again. Um, Madeline, let's, let's close with one very obvious question because I think we'll both have brief uh, good answers to it. Why are we vaccinating 74 million under 18 year olds when just 630 have died from slash with COVID? I don't, I, I don't know whether that answer, like whether the numbers in that question are correct. The direction of it, of course, is that why are we vaccinating uh, kids when statistically they don't die from COVID? Um, 
I think the, the question is, I mean, actually, maybe it's not that easy to answer. Um, I, I'm vaccinated. I hope my family members are vaccinated, too. But it is true that we're taking a lot of resources and directing them towards a population that statistically isn't struggling with COVID, although the vaccines, I think, primarily are good at uh, protecting people from spreading. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. <laughs> We're not doctors. I think I think life is all about calculating risks, and um, and I think a lot of people aren't really doing accurate risk calculations when it comes to their children. Like I've I know I know people that you know drove two hours, drove their child, um, you know, two hours in the car to get because the vaccine was for five to twelve year olds was available quicker in a bigger city than where they lived, and. I'm sure you could run the stats that they're more likely to die in that two hour car ride in a car accident than they are from COVID. But <laughs> that's just like a good example of risk calculation when it comes to kids. I think more kids have died of drowning in the last year than of COVID. So and just there's all sorts of stats you can you can pluck as you will. Yeah. I mean, I think the point I was trying to make is that like people the, the logic behind vaccinating. But this is, again, the problem is that like the media is incapable of conveying this. They're cap- incapable of making good arguments on any of this um, because they refuse to present fair and accurate information because they're terrified of running afoul of the government's COVID propaganda. Um, right. They like the, the point is so that you don't have a bunch of kids that are around grandparents um, and around vulnerable people. Um, and by the way, kids are disproportionately not disproportionately they're obese at stunning rates. There was a study that came out um, recently uh, saying that I think it was half of 18 to 25 year olds. So I guess that's above the child demographic are uh, overweight or obese. I, I, again, I'm just like spouting. Yeah, I, I believe things. that. Um, yeah. So I guess I, I see the logic behind that, but it seem it does seem like uh, the resources are being like continually pressed in illogical directions that are not well substantiated by the Fauci's of the world um, when they're asked to substantiate them because the media doesn't ask good questions. Um, the media is entirely in bed with them and in support of everything they say because they're terrified of uh, going over the edge um, or like asking someone the wrong question. And on top of that, they most of them just like believe what the government tells them anyway, as long as the government is Joe Biden. <laughs> right. Oh. Yeah, people cede cede too much power to the CDC, which I don't. Or maybe people don't anymore after the year they've had. Maybe at the beginning of COVID, they believe in the CDC, but I think they've kind of ruined their reputation. Yeah, agree. Well, Madeline and I can't compete with uh, Molly Hemingway and David Harsani. We don't have the same rapport. I don't think we have the same uh, respect for each other. I have very little <laughs> respect for Madeline. We don't have the same uh, music credentials as they do. That's true. Um, and yeah, I just, I feel like I don't respect you as a, a mother, as a colleague. Ouch. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, Madeline is, is a lovely human being, um, uh, who I spent a great time with early in the pandemic, um, <laughs> uh, watching the goop docuseries on Netflix. Well, what were we drinking? Um, Modelo. Those are, those are some of our darkest times. Those were dark, dark days. Um, and, and now I let Madeline play with my Oculus, um, and, and feed, uh, the, the little dinosaur that lives in my Oculus. Uh, I am, I'm not going to give into the Oculus yet, but maybe one day when we're all living in the metaverse, I'll get one and we can play ping pong across the country. There is nothing 
I have ever seen Madeline, with the exception of her child, react to with uh, such affection as the virtual dinosaur that lives in my Oculus. <laughs> that's, that's why I can't go into the metaverse. It's just too. It's too. Uh, it's too addicting for you because you have such a soft spot for animals. It's like if Pokemon were real. <laughs> oh my gosh! Or uh, like Neopets. Yeah, basically. Were you, were you big into that? I bet you were, like Tamagotchis. And... Uh, no, I was more into, more into Pokemon. I had a Game Boy. I didn't have a Tamagotchi. I guess you probably, I mean, you had enough real animals to deal with. That's true. That's true. Uh, Madeline, one of my favorite fun facts about her is that she had chickens during college. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I put them in the back of my car to bring them home for Christmas break. Just a weird, deeply weird and disturbed individual. Um, <laughs> Madeline. I'm never doing a Q&A with you again. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'll say to listeners, if you uh, want us to do more of these, shoot us questions, of course, always to radio at the um, And we, if you're interested in maybe you hated this and that's entirely reasonable, I think. And I would, I don't think either of us would be offended. Um, so maybe you hated this, but if you liked it and you want us to do more, you can always send questions there and we will make a point to answer answer them more often. Um, Madeline, thank you so much for your time. And I hope you and your lovely family have a very Merry Christmas. Thanks, Emily. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. I heard the faint voice of reason. <laughs> 